Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello, and welcome to Neil Before Pod interviews. I'm your host, Craig, and recently I had the pleasure of talking to actor, musician, producer, director, and I'm sure many jobs I'm forgetting, Wes Mack. Our discussion covers making a pandemic album, juggling creative impulses, and appreciating what you do. Please note that Neil Before Blog is in full support of the SAG after strike, and we hope for a resolution that will result in those on strike getting fair compensation for the work they do. Wes Mack is not under a SAG contract, so no pickets were crossed to give this interview. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on Neil Before Pod with Wes Mack, actor, musician, director, does everything really. Hello, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. That's my pleasure. So let's just dig right in then. You have pretty eclectic career interests, it has to be said. Yeah. You wear a lot of hats. Yeah. What came first for you, music or acting or producing, directing? Where did you start? Yeah, good question. It kind of becomes a question of where I started and then where I had any degree of success. There are many chapters in my career, like, I guess I, music would have been first in the sense that like I was playing in a band, but I would have been doing that for many years, playing in just like empty pubs and things like that, <laughs> and probably enjoyed some success as an actor before I had any career traction as a musician. So it was actually kind of interesting for me when I started off and it basically throughout the course of interviews and that it always seems like, oh, this one might've come first or whatever. But I guess I got into music first, but enjoyed some success in acting first. And they've gradually, you know, kind of gone roller coastered their way along. You've kind of used one to boost the other in a way, I'm guessing. I try to, because they, they certainly fight with each other as well in terms of just scheduling and you only have so many hours in a day just to allocate. So it's helpful when they can help each other. Like early in my music career, I, I wrote my first hit song, for lack of a better word, that they gave me some kind of music career with a guy who I met largely because of a TV role that I had, where I was playing a musician on a, on a show called Heartland. And I think that was kind of on his radar. And that kind of got me into the room with someone who, like him, who was like a very good writer. Oh, so let's talk a bit about your latest album, Hummingbird. I listened to it when I was preparing for this, really enjoyed it. So Thank well you. done. I enjoyed Thanks. your other bits of music that I listened to as well. The blurb I got mentioned that it's a pandemic album or it became a pandemic album. Yeah. You talk about, about the process of putting that together. I imagine it was a completely different skill set you had to learn overnight almost. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Nobody tells you you're going to make a pandemic album. <laughs> that just kind of happens. I started it in early March, 2020. And so just before things went to... Yeah. So I'd maybe gotten about a week into it of thinking it was going to be done the way my previous two albums were done with me going into studios and traveling around a little more, going to Nashville, going to other cities, doing rights, yada, yada. And then that became glaringly obvious. It wasn't going to be the case. A lot of this album had no plan at that point. It just became like, okay, just do the next logical thing. I'd gone out to my cabin in March, 2020 for what was supposed to be this four day long birthday trip. Me and my girlfriend flew up there and we ended up staying for four and a half months because our flights home got canceled. And then it, we realized, oh, this is actually kind of a good place to be because it's quite isolated and social distancing was very easy to execute at my cabin, which is where I am actually right now. So as a result of that, I was like, okay, well, I, I want to try and 
see if I can figure out how to continue working on music. So I have a shed out back here that had a lot of music gear in it that had been stored there over the years, over the last like 15 years of just guitars and amps and computers that are 15 years old um, are all kind of stored out there. So I started just pulling things out and I was like, okay, I think I can put together a working studio here. I, at the time, had an apartment in Vancouver and I, I sent a text to my then roommate and was like, hey, I need you to send me a package full of my underwear because I had brought very little of that. <laughs> As well as I had one microphone in Vancouver that I was like, if I can get that one item, I think I can make the rest of this work here. So he sent that to me and the song Don't Change was the first song on the record. I did all of that during that first lockdown, but it, it also became a lot of collaborating in that I didn't produce that alone. I co-produced that with my friend Jordan Norbeck. And so that was a lot of sending tracks back and forth between two different countries to work on that. And that kind of became the blueprint for the rest of the record of once we did the one single, it was like, okay, well, this can work. I'd been producing a fair bit for years on my own. This just all of a sudden became, okay, now you really have to do it. Now you're going to be putting out songs that is your production, your engineering hands. Songs like Be Without You and House of Love are entirely produced by me. So those are ones where I didn't have anyone else working on them or playing on them. So it just sort of became a piecemeal record of, all right, this is where we're at in lockdowns. This is where we're at in pandemic. It slowed things down. It took four years to get this record done the way I wanted it to, which I don't think would have taken that long had it not been a pandemic album. But uh, it also opened up all these opportunities to write with people. There was a real almost stigma around Zoom writing before. People really didn't like doing that. It was kind of you thought, oh, there's no vibe for that. That's not, you're not going to create anything. It became the only way to write. And now people, I think, are just, my, myself included, I, I was not wild about it before. And after doing it, though, for a couple of years, it feels pretty much the same. I've got a couple of writes this week that are Zoom writes with people. Everybody's in a different time zone, different cities, different countries. The upside to that is I can write with anybody anywhere. And it doesn't require you to plan like a two-week trip and accommodations if really what you want is just to write one song with one person. Because I think sometimes in the past, it would be like, okay, I want to write with this one person in Nashville. So I'm going to build a whole trip around that. And that's great. But if all you really needed was the one song with the one person, that's what you wanted to write, then it's certainly easy to roll out of bed and do that now. So you just need to find a few hours here or there to just yeah. go on Zoom, basically. Yeah, It really helps for that. I mean, honestly, I sometimes have done it even when I'm like in Vancouver and I have a write in Vancouver. The person lives an hour away. If I'm particularly busy on a day, I can save myself two hours of driving to just write and just get into the creative thing and not do the rest. There is still something that's absolutely missing that is not the same as being in the same room as someone. But I think with a little bit of homework in advance, you can do writes really well like that and open up possibilities to write with people you otherwise maybe would never have a chance to write with. Yeah, well, a lot of musicians and comedians were adapting during the pandemic by doing like Twitch gigs and YouTube yeah, gigs totally. and stuff like that. I went to a few of those. I say went, I paid money and then watched people <laughs> yeah. play music for a bit. And, you know, it was quite good being sitting in my living room just watching a gig play out. Oh, totally, totally. I don't know. I always have such mixed feelings of... I feel like I spend too much time on my phone, on social media, online, and I feel like the pandemic yanked us even further into that. But to some positive effects, there are some things that came out of it where people can connect easier. And I mean, honestly, even like using Zoom, I remember Skype calls in the past were like kind of a disaster tech-wise, and it often was really hard to hear people, and it looked like you were made of like four pixels. I feel like everybody through adaptation in this. I don't know, you have people sometimes going into the office less and maybe having more time to do what they want out in the real world. It's such a balance. But yeah, you try to, like I said, right, just kind of making the best of it and trying to take the most they can from it. 
if it happened in the 80s, the technology wouldn't have existed to keep us connected in the same way. Oh, I know. Yeah, you wonder what people would have. It feels like we're in an era where we have the ability to, so everyone connected even harder on online. You wonder if, if this had happened in the past, if it would have actually broke it in the other direction, had people become more soloistic hiking kind of people, <laughs> like pushing people to just be less connected or something like that. The technology and the timing of the pandemic are so interwoven in like the fallout that's happened for better or worse. So you got the album done. It took you longer than it would have normally. Yeah. But you found it more rewarding in a way because you got to collaborate with different people that you might not otherwise have. Yeah. And honestly, making some of the stuff just myself, Be Without You is like the first song that I've released. Very beginning in my career, I guess I released a song more than 10 years ago that was fully produced by me, but at a very different phase in life and career and stuff. And to all of a sudden have a single out right now, I'm looking at the streaming numbers on it and and it feels kind of oddly special to be like, oh, wow, I just did that one sitting at home. There was no one else involved. I mean, I got it mixed by my friend Jordan and there's co-writers and stuff on it, but the actual production, I don't know, it gives you a sense of feeling of autonomy, which you sometimes don't have in the entertainment industry of feeling like it's very dependent on other people saying yes and being involved. And it's kind of nice when you can take that back a little bit and and go, okay, well, I can make this on my own. I can put it out on my own and it can go and do similar things that my other singles are doing where I've had armies of people working on them. So that's kind of nice. Kept you busy as well. That would have been a a key thing. Yeah, it really did. You know, it's funny because in the first lockdown, I worked on that one song a lot and I guess I did a bunch of music stuff, but I also, I really tried to allow myself to delve into other creative things that I often wanted to do, but didn't have time to do. Like I wrote a couple of screenplays, a few of them got decently far into a few competitions and ultimately have made some interesting career introductions and stuff that I still have going on now a couple of years later. So that was really satisfying in that it's odd when you go to play in another creative sandbox. Like you said at the start, I, I wear a lot of hats and I enjoy doing that, but you often feel like once you have a career in say like music, that what you should spend all your time doing is writing and making music because that's how you're paying your bills. That's the track kind of thing. And sometimes it feels insane to sit down and be like, okay, well, I'm going to try and write a book or write something or, or engage in like a different creative art that you don't have an immediate channel to be like, cool, this is how we sell that. This is how this immediately converts into money and success and career. There's a temptation, at least for me, to stay on the horse that's running and always be doing that because it's such a fickle business and it's such a roller coaster. And I feel grateful to have gotten a B in this business for my whole life, basically making art, but you always are curious where your next job is coming from. So I guess the pandemic created this little bubble where it was like, okay, well, there's no way to really advance things significantly over in in the main track that I'm on. I can't be touring. I can at most put out a single or something like that. So I can put a little time into that. But there was this amount of time where I felt some creative freedom to try other things and that I really enjoyed. I feel like they went well, both for me personally, and I was able to do a couple interesting things with them. But then they oddly made me more inspired to go back and write more music. It felt easier to step back into doing co-writes. And I do a fair bit of writing for other artists. I felt more inspired going back to that, having filled up other cups as well. Taking a break from one creative outlet kind of strengthens the other in a way, or strengthens the desire for the other. Totally, totally. I mean, I think myself for sure, but humans in general, we crave novelty and variety. And so even if you're doing something that is like, I love songwriting and that's a creative outlet that I really enjoy. But when I do it every single day, the exact same sort of thing, it still can feel monotonous at times if you don't break it up with something else. Yeah. 
And one of your other hats is, as you've said, acting. And you've yeah. appeared in a lot of shows that I love. One I definitely want to ask about was Smallville because you were in oh, cool. a great episode, you know, a really ambitious episode, Absolute Justice. You played Icicle. Oh, yeah. So full cheesy comic book villain, the makeup, the ice powers. What was that like working on that show? That was a dream. I'm as much of a nerd as a Pokemon poster on the wall. <laughs> but I mean, admittedly, that might come down at some point, get moved to another location. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to get to jump into the whole DC world and having Jeff Johns write the episode, that was the second acting role I ever had. And it was all of a sudden just being thrust into this. When I got cast originally, it was just going to be one episode. And then they were like, okay, well, maybe we're going to do a double episode. And they're like, well, actually, we're going to sew them together and make it this sort of TV movie event. And we're going to get the Justice Society mixed in with the Justice League kind of main cast. It was so much fun to all of a sudden just, again, straight out of doing a bunch of theater school stuff. I guess that was the third part I had. And all of a sudden to be the villain for the episode and doing the fight choreography and having the special effects scenes where you're shooting ice bullets out of your hands. And and yeah, the absolute mustache twirling dialogue. I affected quite a voice for that that was kind of over the top, but it was very fun. I'd watched a fair bit of Smallville and was a big fan of Tom Welling. And he actually directed half that episode. It was one director on each half. He was just a joy to work with. No ego to him. It's so funny. Tom Welling is so much more, you think when you watch that show, when he's Superman, when he's Clark Kent, he's very stoic. He's very still. I think people misattribute that to him as, oh, well, he's just not doing much as an actor. And he's actually doing a lot because as soon as cut is called, Tom Welling is very animated and very quick moving and stuff. And then you get action and he becomes Superman. The posture is affected in that. I could gush about that forever, man. It was just like formative. Everything was so new on set. I remember I found the cinematographer on that one. I think this is the first time I did this. And I was like, hey, I just would like to shadow you. I, I'm not going to ask you any questions. I'm not going to bug you else to get out of your way. And if you don't want to do this, just tell me to get out of here. But do you mind if I do that? And he was totally on board with it. And I started doing that on a number of shows, especially early in my career, where I just wanted to see everything that was happening. I, I feel like it allowed me to kind of get a free film education, which as I was getting into directing as well at the same time was very useful. So yeah, nothing but great things to say about being on Smallville interesting what you say about Tom Wellings. I've been listening to the Talkville podcast that he's doing with Michael Rosenbaum going over the entire series and he's very chill when he's himself really and it's interesting yeah. to hear him talk about it as a job because a lot of viewers will just see it as a as a fan and think oh yeah they must love every second of this and whatever but it's interesting to hear about the challenges all those kind of things yeah it's long day to get a lot of those things i remember when we were shooting the final battle sequence and it's michael shanks flying down as hawkman swinging his mace at me and we had this whole like pretty intricate setup he was up on wires and i was doing this spin jump to blow over and back it, it just took so many takes over and over and over again i think it was the first time where I started to see that that is a huge part of just being in film. It sometimes has nothing to do with you. Sometimes it's just a camera movement, but you're going to go and do this thing 30 times in a row and you're going to be tired and hungry and whatever. But I mean, for me, still, that's my favorite place in the world to be. I'm kidding a candy shop anytime I'm on a film set. Any amount of me feeling anything, tiredness, worn downness, whatever, usually melts away as soon as I just look around because you, you spend so much time trying to get there. I laugh and say, oh, I do my best work on a film set when I'm an out of focus guy in the background. Usually a lot of actors really won't like, sometimes you'll get asked to be a background actor while you're acting. Let's say you're in a scene doing something and then they need to film another scene that's happening in like an office that you're working in. And for continuity's sake, it would be nice if you were still in the background. I know some actors get really bothered by that. Whereas I, I love that because then I'm on a film set in a chill environment where I'm just hanging out there and I'm my character supposed to be there 
but I don't really have to do anything. I was working on a show a couple of years ago with Kate Beckinsale called Guilty Party, and we were in the same office together, and they asked me to do that. You can just watch through any number of the takes. It's always just me pretending to be on a computer in the background <laughs> or like writing stuff. I don't know, man. I, I just enjoy it. The shine of it has never worn off for me in doing this for over a decade. I feel really grateful to be there. In the case of Smallville, you're standing around while Green Arrow and Hawkman and <laughs> all that stuff is going on around you. And the stories you hear, I remember it was Pam Greer and Phil Morris were just talking to each other in the next chair. I got Martian Manhunter and Waller there. They're just swapping stories throughout their career. I can sit back and just melt into the wall and just be like, oh, man, I'd, I'd pay money to be here, but they're paying me to be here. It's crazy. <laughs> I love that show and Absolute Justice was one of those, wow, if we could have that every week, that would be incredible. And then the Arrowverse happens and you kind of do have that almost every week. I know. It almost feels like that's where the seeds were starting to get planted for that idea of how much universe crossover can we do? It was kind of ahead of its time in a sense in that now you see a lot of that. That's pretty commonplace in all the comic universes, a lot of crossover and stuff. You didn't see that as much. Smallville in general, when you think that that show starts in like 03 or maybe even earlier, pretty early in the the 2000s, it was kind of the only thing out there doing that. It was a comic book show that is now commonplace. There's tons of that, but that was kind of its own little thing. And you appeared on Legends of Tomorrow as well, which obviously one of the inheritors of Smallville and another favorite of mine, because that was just insane, that show. And you were on a particularly insane episode as well. Yeah. Same thing. They seem to get the memo. We're having fun with this. We're playing it fast and loose and we're going to be wacky and wild with it rather than trying to keep it super buttoned up. My favorite thing, I always remember this for anyone listening that hasn't seen it, I'm, I'm playing a leprechaun in Legends of Tomorrow. And to be clear, I'm not just playing an Irishman. I'm playing a leprechaun. And so it's very, oh, top of the morning to I'm using my leprechaun magic. And I had someone on Twitter feed at me after the episode being like, Wes Mack does a terrible Irish accent. He sounds like an effing leprechaun. And I'm like, dude, I am. <laughs> I'm a leprechaun in it. It's called out. They literally like the leprechaun is there. It's always stuck with me. People get mad at whatever. But I was like, well, yeah, it was not a grounded Irish accent. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, cool. And you did Supernatural as well. A lot of actors I've spoken to have told me that was essentially a rite of passage in Canada for a while. Very correct. In Vancouver, you kind of got your badges. You got your like Smallville one, your Supernatural one, because they just ran for enough seasons. And then, you know, people who would get it twice where you would get it and then they would let you if it had been five years and you weren't a major character, you could audition again for a different (laughs) character. But I don't have double badges on any of them. I think I did audition, though, again for Supernatural years later. I didn't get the part, but I got to play the really fun one. I mean, who gets to play an angel turned demon stuck in a pop star's body? It was very (laughs) fun. Yeah. And I've heard nothing but nice things about Jared and Jensen on set and stuff as well. I didn't actually end up working with Jensen, but Jared was there and my scene was with him. And he was so kind. He actually, very similar to Tom Welling, he passed along a few tips to me from his experience of working on the show that made things so much easier. The example with him, spoiler alert, I get stabbed with a blade at some point and it's not going well for me. And so when he would stab me with the blade in a take. I was doing this big look. Oh, I was doing a death scene, putting all this effort into it. And we did a few takes like that. And Jared then pulls me aside and he's like, I'm going to make this easier for you. You might not know this. When that blade hits you, we're no longer going to hear your voice. They're going to edit it out. If you just go completely stiff, they're going to add all this computer generated soul flying out of you. They're going to do this whole thing with it. And he's like, 
You can save yourself a bunch of effort. He's not trying to get me to phone it in. He's rather just saying, this is exactly what they're going to do because I know the CG effect with it. It's going to make your life way easier. Trust me. And so I did that on the next take. And all of a sudden the director's like, oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. I looked over and he was kind of giving me the wink being like, yeah, told you, man. But yeah, he was lovely and very tall. My God, him and Tom (laughs) Welling. Dudes are giants. That was a lot of fun. He has to be so serious through that whole scene, whereas I am just a vindictive, tormenting, zany character. It was actually kind of funny when I when I auditioned for that, I really pride myself on being very well prepared for those kind of things and, and, and very professional. However, at the time I was directing two music videos and one had just shot the day before and the other one was going to camera in like two days. And so I was working on a lot of the pre-production for it. So I came in on no sleep, no sleep whatsoever, and was just fried for the audition. And I was like, okay, we're just going to make the best of this. And I get two lines in and I forgot all all the lines, the whole piece of paper, <laughs> it just totally blank. And I don't know why there's... It's fine to call a line. It's fine to redo. But I was just so zonked and out of it. So I ended up just stalking around the room for a while, staring down the reader. I think I pushed a chair slowly over and it was like a cat just batting at things until eventually the lines came back to me. But it was probably a full... 15 seconds, which feels like an eternity in an audition of just being weird. And we continued the scene. And I remember I walked out of it. I called my agent. I'd never done this before or after. And I was like, I think you might need to call and just kind of damage control that audition. (laughs) Just apologize. Just say, I'm shooting two videos. I'm really low on sleep. Sorry if that was weird for you guys. And then she called me back. She's like, they booked you. They booked you. (laughs) And I'm like, oh man, funny enough. Then when we actually filmed the thing, I was in the middle of editing both of those, both deadlines had collided. And so when we actually filmed the scene, me and Jared, I was on basically no sleep again. And I was like, ah, well, good. I mean, at least I'll be the guy that I was in the audition then. Just weird. They'll get what they expected. Yeah. 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 They'll get what they paid for. (laughs) That's cool. I'm guessing the Vancouver acting community will miss Supernatural or are already missing Supernatural. It's been gone a few years now. Totally. Those shows become institutions and they run like clockwork and they employ a ton of people. People outside the industry will forget. It's actually kind of poignant to almost bring up during the, the SAG strike. The face of that ends up being super famous actors who are very wealthy and stuff. But really, it's an industry where the vast majority of people working in film are very working class individuals everywhere from the crew to the day playing actors, the minor guest stars. And, it, and it's all the auxiliary stuff that happens around shooting. When you go to film something, I always chuckle. It's like, yeah, you need a camera and some actors, but what you also need is a bunch of food and chairs and tables and buildings and washrooms and cars. You just need infrastructure. You just need a bunch of people around and bodies doing stuff. So a show like Supernatural, if you were to figure out the whole footprint of every person who was ever employed by that show or as a spillover of that, it would be thousands and thousands of people spread over more than a decade. So when one of those shows wraps up, it leaves a big hole and you just hope that other shows can come in and try and fill that gap. Yeah, definitely. And in your film life, another nerdy thing you were in that I love is Power Rangers. Oh yeah. It's a shame that one didn't go further actually, because I loved that reboot. I thought they did a good job with it. They were talking about six films. Six. Oh, I didn't hear that. <laughs> when we were shooting, they were, that's what was going around set. They're like, they're doing six. And I, at the time, even was like, that's ambitious out of the gate. Just concentrate on one and then see how we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. But it was fun. Again, I, I'm a geek. I was a diehard Power Rangers fan and still am. That original series to me, it was just like a magical formative time in life. Same. When we were shooting the outdoor, there's a sequence where I'm running across. The putties are attacking, blowing up Angel Grove. And at some point, the assistant director is like, okay, and what's going to happen here is one of the Zords is going to fly over. And I believe that would have been the pterodactyl. <laughs> 
he stops. He's like, sorry, does everyone know what Zords are? And two people are like, no. And I was like, wait, okay, let me take you through this. Okay, Rita, locked in the dumpster. <laughs> we got the power coins. And I, and I just launched into this expedition through the lore of Power Rangers. And he's like, all right, it's a flying robot coming over. <laughs> okay, here we go. Just look above. That's all we need. <laughs> yeah, man, I tried on that because I was playing the bully. There's no Balkan skull in that movie. That's one of my questions. Is your head canon that you are one of them? Yeah, I absolutely. So when I auditioned for it too, because it was all blacked out, I was like, am I bug or skull? Like, are they just doing that as generic bully? And so I on more than one take to try and homage it. This is not me being directed. This is just me being a fanboy. When I would approach Billy sitting at his desk, I was humming the hmm, 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 And I was trying to get the Vulcan Skull theme song to somehow land in this movie just for the sake of the fans. <laughs> Obviously, they cut it out. <laughs> I tried all kinds of dumb stuff in that. I also, I think I was trying to get a Joker line in there at one point when I pulled out the pencil. I was re-quoting him. In, yeah, in my head canon, I was Bulk and or Skull. <laughs> it was crazy being around on that set. I remember when they were talking about who they were going to get for Zordon because they didn't have Brian Cranston obviously cast yet when we were filming a bunch of the stuff. And I was sitting there behind the producers and writers just fly on the wall. And one of the guys had worked with Denzel, the guy who wrote it, John Gaydens had worked with Denzel Washington, obviously on flight, which won an Oscar for him. They were discussing, do you think we could get Denzel? And he's like, well, I can give him a call. I don't know what's left in the budget kind of thing. But yeah, that would be great. And then another guy came in and he's like, we had some people reaching out to the rocks people about this to see if we can get him. And then another guy came in and he's like, oh yeah, well, I had a call. I was trying to put it out to Kanye. I think we could get Kanye to do it. And so those are the names that were <laughs> flying around at the time. I was like, oh my God, if we have Kanye West and Zordon, he's just going to say whatever he wants and people will have to just react. <laughs> Obviously, Brian Cranston was a great choice, though, and knocked it out of the park. But yeah, I remember I, I went and saw that. It came out right around my birthday. So me and a bunch of friends went and saw it in theaters and admittedly got quite drunk. And when they <laughs> played the original Power Rangers theme song at the one point in the climax of the movie, we were all yelling and cheering. At the end of the movie, somebody got up and turned around and was like, is someone from this movie in the theater? <laughs> and my friends were all like, yeah, because it made no sense. You guys were cheering when my character would come on. <laughs> Fans probably shouldn't be up in arms for that. Yeah, I could go on on that one. But safe to say, it was a lot of fun making Power Rangers. You would have got to work with most of the cast for the detention scenes as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that was great. It was fun doing a little slappy slap back and forth with Daker there. We did a bizarre amount of rehearsal for what is two missed punches <laughs> and a slap. Man, it was just cool. You kind of looked around the room and that. It's just one of those odd things where obviously it's a different cast than the ones I grew up with as a kid. But still to be sitting there and be like, I'm messing with the Blue Ranger right now. <laughs> it's kind of weird. It's very fun and sometimes very surreal when you get to step inside a series that you have fandom to yourself. That's a shame there aren't five more of them. There'd be time for it to five more by now as well. It sounds like they're rebooting it again, yeah. I've heard, because the property got sold. Saban sold, I can't remember who bought it, but it sounds like they're booting it up again. So we'll see what happens this time around. When it doesn't make enough money, just reboot it until it does. That's the move. Yeah, that sort of seems like the thing. It's crazy now. The show called Grease 
Rise of the Pink Ladies. I'd auditioned for it a couple of times. And actually, I was cast for a month in a role. And then before we ever got to camera, it got recast. I heard later that it was one of the director's buddies got cast, who'd won like a Tony Award. So fair enough. (laughs) But anyways, the long and the short of it, I saw the trailers for it and it looked like they'd done a good job of it. And then it came out and I hadn't watched it yet. And one day I I remember I was like, okay, I'm going to check out what they ended up doing with this. I knew a few people who worked on it. And I found out that they had pulled the show. Yeah. Entirely. And I guess from a tax perspective, you can include it just as a loss and you can essentially write off that money rather than it being money that you spent on something that still exists, that's still your asset. It, from a tax perspective, makes more sense to some of these studios to just burn a show like that entirely, pull it from all streamers, pretend it didn't happen. But man, as an artist, what a gut punch. Yeah. Especially for the creators of that show and like everybody who worked on it would have spent months and years on that thing. And and that seems to be increasingly commonplace that that's happening. Yeah. It's not not something I'm a fan of, just erasing things. It's never no. good. I don't like it. I doubt any fans or artists or creators or anyone like it. I think it's simply a studio math thing where it's like, "Mm, yeah, not big on that, but what you going to do? Another thing you can boast about is being in a film with Liam Neeson. Yeah. Is he as scary as he seems? (laughs) Only between action and cut. He (laughs) is terrifying between action and cut. And I mean that the voice and the whole, but I got to say like, nicest dude I've probably ever worked with. Kindest human between takes. Ah, What story to tell? The person who handed out per diems on that, she would hang out in the hotel lobby every night at like midnight and made cookies or had cookies for everyone. And Liam would come down every night and sit there at midnight and hang out with the crew and have a cookie. He was the most A-listy actor I know who doesn't appear to enforce that ego boundary that sometimes will step in. He was very much amongst the crew, amongst the cast, made everyone feel at the same level as him and was there to work and was tremendously kind. Between every take, you know, he'd be rocking me against the wall and like, where is he? And, and then we go, cut, Wesley, was that all right for you? Uh, and I go, yeah, Liam, I'm all good. And he's like, all right, very good. Then he'd sit down and he'd talk to me about going dog sledding with his son. And it was just <laughs> super chill, tremendous dude. But then a force of nature between action and cut. And what I really appreciated on one of the days we were shooting is really long day. He would have been filming in every scene of the day. He would have been like 13 hours deep or something like that. And I was many hours deep myself. And we got to my coverage in the one scene. So that's camera on me. So he's not going to technically be in the shot anymore. And one of the producers or something had asked him, hey, Liam, do you want to go? We can put in a stand in for you here. You know, you can go get some sleep. And he looked at him. He's like, well, no, I've got to be here for Wes to give him the energy. I was so many things. I was so happy. I remember almost tearing up. You don't get that on every show. There are the high up actors out there that I've sometimes worked with that are not super pleasant and really bring their ego into the room. And that was a moment where I was like, man, this guy really appreciates the work here and the craft and is just like, well, yeah, I'm not going to be in this shot, but I need to match the energy for him so that he as an actor can work. That was him like day in, day out on that whole show. It was a privilege to get to work with him. And then that's all great that he's all nice and everything. But between action and cut, the guy's a legend. For me, it was sheer terror. When that guy rushes at you to throw you against a wall, very little acting is required. (laughs) And he's also a giant. The guy is like six foot a million. He's got the reach. So yeah, that was too much fun getting to work with him. He was from that kind of grassroots of starting at the bottom, working up in, in small productions. So it's nice that that's stuck with him throughout his career by the sounds of things. I think that ends up being essential to how you get like that in that you have that appreciation for it. The actors I've run into where it's a problem are often ones who maybe had a family connection or maybe 
just made it really big on an early role when they were like a teenager. It's like plunking someone right out of like high school who's still into like cliques and stuff and giving them tons of money and success and never having anyone tell them no. They never stop being that way. They never like emotionally mature. I feel like you have to go through some roller coaster chapters of your life to become an adult. And I don't think you have any appreciation for how good you can have it at various phases of your career if you haven't at some point not had it good. For me on the days where I get to work with Liam Neeson, I can go through anything on those days. I'm going to appreciate being there because again, you do the time, you do the small little plays and you do the bad student films and you spend like hundreds of hours on sets and you audition a million times. When you finally get to do those things on the big days, if they need you to do it, a hundred times. I'm like, yes, sir. May I have another? So I feel like that makes sense for someone like Liam. You work your way up into having the kind of career you want and you appreciate the road that's behind you. Cool. And you have a couple of things coming up this year, transplant yeah. being one of them, where it seems like you're a problem or your character's yeah. a problem. Yeah. I've been told I, I'm like limited in my capacity to talk about it. It comes out in a couple of days. But yeah, I'm Dr. Ryan Ashcroft and I'm a problem. <laughs> we made the running joke that I don't know if you're familiar with the show, The, the Good Doctor, but I repeatedly made the joke around me of that I'm the bad doctor. <laughs> it was fun. I had various family members reach out and be like, oh, you finally went to med school, eh? <laughs> it was great though. Auditioning for that. It's funny because when you're reading for a medical procedure or something like that, one of the big scenes we're operating is the audition. And so obviously when I'm auditioning in my studio or bedroom <laughs> home or whatever. <laughs> there is no body in front of me. So you come up with business to do. My audition, I remember specifically, I took a piece of paper and I just took paper clips. I had six of them and I clipped them onto the piece of paper and I took <laughs> them up. I did this out of frame. The key I've learned over the years, it's often helpful to just have something real that you're doing. And then you can focus on the scene, but you are doing something down out of frame that looks like, oh yeah, I buy that, that he's doing something. Whereas if you're just miming it, it often looks less grounded. But having done that and then getting cast, I flew out to Montreal to shoot it. And I remember thinking, are they going to teach me the medical aspect of this? Like you can only research so much. Am I going to be clipping paper clips? And fortunately, as much to my pleasant surprise on that show, they bring in an actual doctor or doctors and nurses to have present on the day of to consult with the actors, to take you through it, show you what it should actually be like, and then correct you take to take and go like, actually, like it would be more like this. So that was wonderful because then all of a sudden you can be like, cool, I now trust that what my hands are doing looks reasonable. And now I can do my job as an actor in the room, but trust that I'm not brutally disrespecting that profession by <laughs> just making it up. So that was really nice. They had a wonderful squad of people and they're in their fourth season on that show. So again, kind of runs like a well-oiled machine of how to handle that kind of stuff. Everybody came in on the Saturday beforehand and had this big medical rehearsal, just dealing with the tech aspects. And apparently that's what they do on pretty much a weekly basis. You must have had a lot of jargon to learn as well. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Fortunately, I don't mind that because A, being a geeky, nerdy guy... I find that stuff usually isn't my major sticking point. Like you get a lot of that in sci-fi fantasy where you have to be like, we need to find the elder crystal of Shinara <laughs> to open up the portal. You know, and you, you get a lot of that. And because I enjoy that as a fan, I think you just get used to consuming that kind of stuff. So all of a yeah. sudden it's like, okay, well today it's medical jargon and tomorrow it might be police jargon and the next day it might be law. It's just part of the gig. I think it's usually just trying to find a way to you realize that that stuff, well, sometimes in the case so of my character, without giving away too much, 
if you're not supposed to have the most prowess as a doctor, it's okay for you to struggle with those terms. It's the most difficult when your character is supposed to be a master at what they're doing. You know, if you're supposed <laughs> to be like a wonderful chef, but if you're not supposed to be great at it, which is a luxury for me on transplant, it gives you room to be like, well, if I'm struggling to get that word out, that seems plausible. So you, you use those things when they're applicable and helpful, I guess. And you seem to love doing Christmas projects. This <laughs> one that's coming up will be your third Cape Holly Christmas. The synopsis looks really sweet and wholesome, actually. And yeah. You get to sing original and classic Christmas songs, apparently. Yeah. Wholesome's the word. It's not reinventing the wheel. It is like your quintessential feel-good Christmas movie. There's a bake-off involved in a small town. <laughs> but I will say, after the last four years of what life has been, I get the value of those. There's so many people I know who have reached out in my involvement in those who appreciate those on a level that you can overlook where it's like, maybe they're missing a loved one. Maybe Christmas isn't the way that they quite want it to be that year or many years in a row. I think sometimes those kind of movies allow people to slip into an idealized Christmas fantasy where everything feels light and safe and wholesome. I get the value of that because that can be really tough around the holidays. And when you can have that kind of stuff to turn on, I think that can really help a lot of people have a holly jolly good time. It was really fun to get to shoot. It's not super heavy. The filming days are a lot of fun. In this instance, my character's kind of wacky. He's a musician. I'm a country singer and it's literally just me playing myself, but in a bake-off. And so it was, it was just a lot of fun getting to sing for it was great. But, but also I was chuckling on similar thread as on transplant with the medical stuff. There's a sequence there where I'm having to do a bunch of baking in this bake-off. <laughs> and I pointed out, like, I don't have the expertise for this. But then it was pointed out to me that my character, once again, is supposed to be terrible at baking. So I was like, <laughs> this is great. This is wonderful. I can just throw anything in the bowl whatsoever. I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm actually a better baker than my character is. So I've got the uh, levity to muck around <laughs> with this. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. And you kind of get to have Christmas in the middle of the year when you're working on one of those. That must be surreal. Yeah, you get this weird dose of, usually it's in the summer. This one was fortunately in March we shot it and it was actually cold. So that was good in a sense. I mean, it actually was the coldest I'd ever been in my entire life. But usually what you get is you're bundled up in a parka and it's the middle of the summer. And so it's sometimes nice when it's actually a little chilly. But yeah, totally surreal. It'll be May afternoon and you walk into a place that's more decked out for Christmas than you've ever made your own home. <laughs> but yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's Cape Holly Christmas coming out later this year. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll answer that. I'll put this on and just feel good for a couple hours. Sort of need. Yeah, it's like the warm hug kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> Great. So last question is one ask everybody. You've actually had superpowers, so maybe it'll be different, maybe it won't. But I always ask, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? The scope of this is always my problem. If I have to keep it reasonable, I would say flight, because I'd love to be able to fly. That's just a simple childhood kind of one. But if I had to be more, if I had bigger scope to it, it would be to reshape the entire universe kind of thing. <laughs> it sounds lofty, but like, cool. There's no poverty anymore. All <laughs> inequality is gone. I would take that one because I would love to resolve the state of the world if I could. But if I was being brutally selfish, I would fly. For me, it would be speed so I could get places quickly. I like that too. So you have the flash kind of thing going yeah. on. But I don't want to teleport because the running would be good exercise. Yeah, I like that. And then you get to see things along the yeah. way. I think that's my enjoyment of flight that I could just be anywhere pretty quick if I could fly. Because I think in my head, I assume I would fly at also a very fast pace, you know, that I could kind of dictate sort of a Superman-esque flight. <laughs> 
and then you would need some kind of durability because it's cold up there and stuff. Yeah, quite cold. And I imagine there'd be like enough friction of air on you. <laughs> That's the thing. You always need a companion superpower. When I was shooting the show, The Imperfects, my character is supposed to be invulnerable, but he doesn't actually have super strength. He sort of seems like he should based on you can shoot him with a gun. It's fine. So there's an instance where he's trying to pull open a big door and my character is grumbling like some super strength would have been good <laughs> because... <laughs> My invulnerability gives me that I can grip it extremely well. I can push my metal fingers basically in through the door and get a good grip, but I'm still only as strong as I am. <laughs> so it's, you want that full package. Yeah, you can be greedy with these things. Yeah, yeah, you really can. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. It's been great chatting to you about all the, the nerdy stuff. I hope the album yeah. goes great. Thanks so much, Greg. Uh, I hope the two projects you've got coming up this year go great. And I hope loads of other stuff. And hope some point in the future you'll be on again to talk about more stuff that you're in. That sounds great, Craig. Again, getting to find a kindred spirit who enjoys <laughs> the nerdy culture of the world. I've got my Dungeons and Dragons shirt on underneath this. <laughs> nice. I was a little chilly when we started, but uh, yeah, man, it's been great chatting with you too. It's been great. So thank you very much and good luck with everything, all your stuff. Thank you, Craig. Have a great day. Thank you. That was my conversation with Wes Mack. I wish him the very best with all his future projects. Links to find his music and socials can be found in the show notes. And if you want to talk about anything discussed here, or anything else really, you can contact us on Twitter or Facebook under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment under neilbeforeblog.co.uk. You can also join us on Discord. For more interviews, a monthly news podcast, and deep dive analytical discussions about your favourite nerdy things, join us on Neil Before Pod.